Hello and welcome to the Why I Knit podcast. My name is Dr. Mia Hobbs and I'm a clinical psychologist who is passionate about knitting and its benefits for our mental health. Each week on the podcast, I interview a different knitter about why they knit and how it benefits their mental health. This week on the podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Fran of Woolen Hearted. Fran is a bear maker and multi-crafter who is originally from the UK but now lives in France. Hi Fran, welcome to the podcast. Hi Mia, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, I always start with asking where your story with knitting or crafting in general began. So where did you all start? Um, So for knitting, um, it began somewhere between my fifth and my seventh birthday, which I can't quite remember exactly when and I can't really remember learning how to knit. I remember the first thing I made. And it's odd because I can remember learning to read, but not learning to knit. So, okay. Do you remember um, who taught you? Yeah, it was a mixture of my mum and my grandma. Mm -hmm. But again, I'm not sure which one did it first. Mm -hmm. Um, But I know that by the time I was seven, I was knitting independently. Okay. um, Because that's really early, actually, isn't it? Yeah, well, it was the first year of junior school and. I was knitting a um, really brightly coloured hot water bottle cover mm-hmm. and it was stockinette stitch. And I know that because I remember asking my mum every row, do I knit or do I purl now? <laughs> <laughs> and I was amazed that she knew because it just seemed like this big mystery to me. How do you yeah. know which one's which? <laughs> yeah. Um, I remember so, that phase as well where I was like, this is some kind of ma- magic skill that yeah. they can look at this thing that looks exactly the same to me and read it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the first thing I ever made was a scarf for my teddy bear, um, mm-hmm. a red scarf. And then I feel like really I've not stopped knitting. Um, wow. There's not really been a time apart from when I've been unwell, um, when I've not un- when I've not, not knitted. Yeah. So you stuck with it straight away and made some actual things because I think I did a lot of seeing my mum knitting. I wanted to have a go. I did it for 10 minutes and then I was on to the next thing and didn't ever finish a thing until I was 25. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, but you were obviously had a different uh, determination. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know what it is, but I just I kept going. And like at junior school, I was in the knitting club. Mm-hmm. um because again I remember um in the summer having those summer dresses and mine had two pockets and it was like oh I could put my wool in this oh. <laughs> so, and yeah in the knitting club we made um like a big blanket I think we gave to some old ladies or something I I I feel like it's I, there was probably times when I wasn't knitting but I know through junior school secondary school age um and then since there's there's really not been a time I haven't knitted so and was that your main craft at the time or were you also doing lots of other crafts as well yeah so until I was about 14 that was my main craft um I think I my mum probably taught me to sew when I was about 12 but it wasn't till I was about 14 that that really took off and then at 14 I was taught how to crochet uh in French okay um so that's another thread actually of my story um I learned some of my crafts in French so I also was taught how to do bobbin lace by by the same lady 
Okay. And it was all in French. And again, I remember learning all these odd vocabulary words for like pin and bobbin. And and so when I did my GCSE uh, um, oral exam, we were asked to talk about what hobbies we had. And I, <laughs> I started talking about lace making. And afterwards, the French teacher who was French said, I had no idea what you were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> you would have had to be pretty confident to have gone off on that spiel and have made it up entirely. With yeah. <laughs> you probably had to assume they were real French words, even if you didn't yeah. know them. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And you live in France now, is that right? Yes. So were you, was, you were in England, were you at the time, doing French? Yes. Okay. Yes. So I I, um, I grew up in the UK in Dorset and okay. um, I kind of fell in love with French again from a really early age because my other grandma is, was Swiss, um, Swiss French. So that was kind of the appeal I think I wanted to be able she she spoke English but I really wanted to be able to kind of be her I think okay um and she actually taught me how to knit socks um Mm -hmm. so when I was sort of a mid-teen probably 13 or 14 along with my Danish sister-in-law um so they both taught me how to knit without a pattern oh wow and Mia my sister-in-law um I've still got the little bit of paper that was just an envelope where she drew out how to do short rows. Okay. <laughs> and she sort of talked about a little bubble and you had to pop the bubble and things like that. And it was really long time later when I realised I already knew how to do short rows because I was terrified to do them in a pattern. And I was like, oh, I've done this before. Oh, you just didn't have a label for them, presumably. No. <laughs> no. Oh, those was are the just bubbles the from the back of the envelope. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. Um, yeah, so craft has always been, or knitting specifically, has always been a, a kind of a connection, I think, with my family mm. um, and then with other people as other people have taught me other crafts. Because um, the lady who taught me crochet and bobbin lace was um, a really good friend of my mum's. Mm-hmm. And so it was like a way to to get to know her better. Okay, yeah. So that it's brought lots of kind of connections to different different people who are important to you in your life yeah yeah Yeah, definitely and in terms of why you think you've stuck with knitting um through all of this time and not uh, moved away from it and done something else you know what do you think makes you keep crafting um I think there's two things I think firstly it just feels so innate to me like like reading writing like I'm still reading writing now I just can't imagine life without it Mm -hmm. but I wouldn't say I'm sort of an obsessive knitter it's just always in my life so I'm not kind of constantly like oh what am I going to knit next and what's what's the next thing because I tend to be quite a sort of simple knitter I just sort of stick to the things I know and I'm probably at my happiest when it's garter stitch and okay um, very simple uh, my style as well is if I'm making garments is very simple as well but I don't have like 500 shawls or mm. jumpers in my wardrobe I just knit those when I need them and then yeah. and then other things like socks I, I really loved socks at the time because it was like oh there was all this maths because Mia my sister-in-law taught me how to do it without a pattern so it's that you can make your own pattern up 
um mm-hmm. you just put in the numbers and then and I loved all the sort of the shaping and the different sections mm-hmm. so I've made a lot of socks over the years but just very plain yeah plain socks um but mm-hmm. obviously they wear out so you always need more <laughs> yeah so it feels like there's an element of it just being uh, feels like a very natural part of your life like yeah you know reading or writing and I guess it has been a way of kind of communicating with people or forming relationships it sounds like mm. for you particularly mm. um and you're also knitting for the things you want to wear yes sounds like. yeah 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 and for other people so I've now got two children so mm-hmm. I've knitted not loads for them because we actually get a lot of things like hand-me-downs Mm-hmm. um but whenever someone sort of says oh I need I need this I need that can I have this um I'm quite happy to do it and I I have started knitting for my husband which took a while I was a bit um uh I was a bit overwhelmed at the thought of knitting he's not much sort of bigger than me but yeah. it felt like quite a, a big thing to knit for him so okay um, yeah yeah and I remembered once I went to a knitting club at um at uni I was in the knit, knit sock they called it and okay. uh, someone had spent nine months knitting for their boyfriend only to be dumped the next week <laughs> oh. yes there is the famous boyfriend curse isn't there about knitting yeah. a sweater for yeah okay so, so you yeah. had to get to the point where you were confident he was sticking around yes yeah. to... once we were married it was fine so. yeah <laughs> Yeah. yeah I mean yeah I guess a man's sweater is generally one of the bigger things you can probably mm. knit and I guess yeah when you're not knitting for yourself yeah you have to be confident they're gonna like it and yeah get the fit as they want it I suppose and those kind of things yeah so you yeah, have knitted was... for him you finished something have you? yes and yeah. I have made him multiple hats and socks and things but his hats they always get lost because he's a he's a mountain guide so they so that's quite good because I've always then got an excuse to knit something new the last hat got lost last winter so I've got to knit a new one this maybe it needs to be like neon now so that people can (laughs) see him and he can see his hat when he's dropped it (laughs) yeah (laughs) okay So, and in terms of this podcast is obviously about um, knitting and how it benefits our mental health. Um, I'd love to hear for you about, yeah, your relationship with knitting and and the other crafts you do as well um, and how they benefit your mental health if they do. Yeah. So I mentioned um, briefly that I've not knitted when I'm unwell. Yeah. Um, so I live with two diagnoses of invisible illnesses. So I've got ME um myalgic and kephamylitis mm-hmm. much like Roz who was in your first podcast mm. it's the same illness yeah. um I don't have the wonderful colorful shawl collection she has, <laughs> <laughs> um and then I've also in the last four years had a diagnosis of bipolar disorder so mm-hmm. specifically um a mental uh illness mm-hmm. um so I think the first way that that knitting or other crafts helped me and probably one of the reasons why I've stuck to them so I've spent a lot of time alone throughout the years um I became ill with Emmy when I was 11 12 so and I was very poorly for the first eight years and I had to spend a lot of time I was homebound and bedbound and so I think that small easy gentle crafts are a real way of helping me be comfortable with my solitude and not feel so lonely Mm. 
and then so as a teenager I was kind of the only one who knitted um apart apart from obviously people in my family who I've mentioned but like at uni I was the only one who in my who's a residence who knitted so I was the kind of odd granny sat in the corner knitting so then as an adult about 10 years ago I discovered online knitting community and it actually through spinning because I'm a hand spinner as well so that was how I discovered knitting blogs and vlogs and podcasts and then Ravelry and and it sort of opened up the world to me and it all of a sudden although these people aren't in the room with me you have this feeling that you're part of something bigger Mm -hmm. and I really love that yeah and I've made lots of connections with people through that and if I sit and watch a podcast while I knit it makes me feel like I'm sat with a friend Mm. Um, so it feels like it's done a lot of bringing connection and community to a way that's accessible for you in the times when you can't kind of get out and about yeah and sometimes as well when I'm so when my bipolar has been quite unstable in the last four years since I was diagnosed because we're still trying to find the right medicines and Mm -hmm. for me to get my head around it so there's times when I'm really struggling with my mental health like to the extent that um like my partner can be a bit nervous to leave me alone for example but Mm -hmm we have this sort of joke that he'll put a podcast on and I'll sit and I'm kind of being babysat by my friend who's showing their knitting and that just really helps I think the other thing it does is it helps to really take my mind off of things um you can sort of uh forget all the big problems can't you when you all you have to worry about is getting to the end of the row and maybe keeping a bit of lace in your head or trying to put a cable in and I I find that it's just really absorbing um and very positive for me um I think there's a sense of agency as well Mm. sometimes my chronic illnesses can really make me feel helpless and if I'm honest a bit worthless um because it's sort of what am I contributing to the world but when I've finished a pair of socks that I can give to my son for example it's look I'm here in this world and I've made this and actually made something quite beautiful um in the midst of something that's quite hard Mm. so and it's something that's come up quite a few times with people who've yeah had I've you know there's a few people I've interviewed who've struggled with chronic illness uh, where they physically might have to spend a large amount of time at home where they could, weren't well enough to leave. And also people who through, usually it's been kind of through feeling really low, have been, had periods of being in their bed. And the idea about being able to do something uh, mm-hmm. and get a sense of achievement, even if it's, um, you know, without getting to the point of finishing the socks, like having yeah. knitted a few rows on a pair of socks that day, um that can make a bit of a difference yeah definitely and I think um the the sort of final thread for me is which goes back to your first question of uh why do you think you're still doing it I think it helps me navigate the grief that can come with having long-term diagnosis because there's so much that I can't do anymore or that's Mm. I've lost particularly as a as a teen when I was really very poorly and couldn't get out of bed and I couldn't go to guides anymore I couldn't sing I couldn't play my instruments I couldn't go to school 
um, for three years. And knitting was the one thing from before I was ill that I could still do. Mm. And I think that it helps me to sort of connect to the person I was and mm. to the child I was because I fell ill as a child. And um, I think there's a real wonderful thing where creativity and play go together as well. Um, and I kind of can't have one without the other. I find it's it's wonderful to just be able to sit and play with materials and not quite be sure what, where you're going or, well, having a small idea of where you're going but not sure how it's going to come out in mm. the end. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so. And I guess the play, um, yeah, element is a way of connecting to the maybe the bits of the childhood that you missed out on of kind mm. of keeping some of those things going. And it sounds like it was an important part of your identity as well to, yeah. to have a bit of the kind of the pre illness fran that you could still engage in and do maybe in the same way that you did before. Um, which I guess wasn't the same with many other things. Um, I was wondering um, also about when you mentioned play about your bears, yeah. <laughs> which I know that you make bears. and I don't actually know how you make them. Okay, <laughs> They look like perfect kind of <laughs> teddy bears you would see in a shop that I, there's like a magic. I don't know yeah. how they come into <laughs> being, but I'd love to hear about how they started and your relationship with making them. Yeah, so the teddy bears I make are old-fashioned style mohair bears. Okay. So the fur they make, the the fur that they have is actually mohair fibers from the angora goat mm -hmm. that are woven into a cotton backing. So sometimes people think, "Oh, did you make the fabric as well?" Um, so I don't make the fabric. I buy that from um, the only mill in the world which is in Germany that still makes this um makes wow. this fair and I think at the time because the, the, the teddy bear sort of is about 120 years old I think at the time the fabric existed and was used for making sort of fur coats okay because there are some teddy bear makers who are really good at vintage hunting and they'll find um not fur like um um uh, fox fur or things like that though because the it's just been shorn off of the animal yeah and then woven in and they'll make bears from that that they find so I'm not very good at vintage thrifting so <laughs> I okay fabric. yeah um and so then they're sewn so I cut out the pattern pieces sew mm -hmm. them together um I use the traditional method of jointing them so they're able to move their hands and feet ah, okay uh, and heads so their head can go all the way around and okay yeah they have glass eyes so originally people would have used boot buttons as the eyes um yeah. so they're they're made in the way that bears used to be made but the only difference is and this is why my online name is woolen hearted i don't stuff them with wood wool which is that kind of stuff you get in packing crates yeah i stuff them with wool um, okay and so right at the end the last thing I do is I stuff the tummy and it feels like I'm giving it its heart which mm -hmm. is why I'm called Woolen Hearted um, okay as my That's online amazing. name yeah I think we had a teddy bear I think it was my mum's that had those jointed arms and like oh yeah those like rotational joints and could move its head actually yeah yeah just remembering that because it's not very common now is no it? I mean you can find um 
you can find old fashioned style bears that mm. move, but they're all generally, if they're mass produced, they're made from acrylic fur, yeah. fun fur, or, um, and it was just, I'm, I'm quite materialistic in the sense of, I love materials. I absolutely love getting my hands in, in the wool, in the, so to me, to use, fun fair like I did as a teenager when I started making them yeah just doesn't feel it reminds me of that um squeaky wool that I used to knit with <laughs> when I was younger so yeah. it doesn't have the same tactile nature yeah um but bear making began probably around the same time actually as my knitting mm-hmm. um the first bear I ever made was made in infant school okay and it was um drawn an outline with a felt tip pen on some kind of weird white fabric and I stapled it together okay because <laughs> I couldn't say and I stuffed yeah. it with like scrunched up paper mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's always been bears and there's always been knitting um but how I got into bear making was uh oh I always really loved teddies just generally and I always if I think there was like a WI craft fair that I went to with my parents and there was this golden knitted teddy and I really wanted it and my dad said no we're going to go to the library and we're going to get a book out and we're going to learn how to make that so there's always been that sort of DIY element as well. Um, Was he a crafter? Because it is an interesting way of looking at it I suppose I think a lot of people wouldn't do that yeah, well, I think my dad, I, I talked about the women in my life and my family, but my dad is probably the more influential person to me um, in many ways because he, as his work, he was a roofer um, oh, okay. for his whole working life, but very interested in traditional ways of working and traditional crafts. Um, I've been to country fairs with him and spent hours looking at, you know, the wood carving or the beekeeper with his woven um hive and things and so dad has a very let's get a book out approach to things and it doesn't matter if we don't know how to do it but we can find out the information and let's give it a go whereas my mum is a more cautious she she's the sewer in the family okay um and she's perhaps a bit more cautious with her with her crafting but she's very good at what she knows so uh, and so it was mum that then taught me how to sew I think I probably ended up knitting a bear probably from a WI pattern or something can't quite mm-hmm. remember now but it was mum that taught me to sew and then when I was 14 I was able to go into school half part-time and we had to make a toy for textiles um, and I chose to make a jointed bear so went to the library got a book got the pattern I'd never done it before but just kind of made it work and uh because I made a lot of it at home so I wasn't in school the whole time the teacher didn't believe I'd made it oh. <laughs> I thought my mum had made it <laughs> did you get her to believe it in the end well when we had parents evening my mum came and was like I hate fiddly things so there's no way <laughs> I made this <laughs> and then she got it the teacher yeah. Yeah. Oh, good. And then bear making just began and Mm -hmm. mum would take me to the fabric shop and buy all this cheap fun fur that's, um, so the the fur I use now is on a woven backing. So it makes the bears sort of, um, like have a good posture, whereas fun fur is on a knitted back and they can be a bit sort of floppy and I mean, they're still nice to cuddle, but they're, 
they're not and the fairs quite there's well at the time it was quite limited I think there was only like five colors or something so Mm -hmm. but yeah I think as a child it began with play play was kind of what motivated me because I wanted the finished object I wanted the bear to play with and yeah and all the other like I was into dolls house making and things as well Mm -hmm. and then I suppose as time went by the play kind of receded and it was more about the making um and then as I've become an adult, it's sort of gone back to the play. Okay. It's quite interesting. Yeah. yeah. And I wonder whether having had your own kids kind of helped with pulling you back into the the play element. Yeah, I think so, because I hadn't I'd had a break making bears for ten years, like when I went off to okay. uni. Mm-hmm. And then I had my first baby, a little boy, and I just, I just woke up one morning and was like, oh. I need to make a bear <laughs> I need mm-hmm. to make him a bear and it was a time I think it was 2016 late in the year I think there was a lot going on in the world that I found quite anxiety provoking so I was sort of like oh I think this would be quite nice for me as well mm. um so I ended up making a bear for me not for him <laughs> <laughs> but I needed to sort of get back into it um and then I've in the last three years I've I've made a bear for him, a, a bigger size bear that's okay. a sort of confidant. Um, and I think, yeah, I think there is an element that when you have children, it's an excuse to be allowed to play. Yeah. <laughs> um, but my children are getting older now and are perhaps they do still play with the bears I've made them. But um, I think my own playfulness is, is I've, I feel like legitimate in being playful now. I, I don't feel embarrassed about it. And obviously I share online um, quite, quite frankly what I do and what, what I feel about play. And I've, I only ever get positive responses actually to it. Um, I was in hospital um, with my bipolar this time last year. And I turned up in hospital with a bear because I had had to go via A&E. And just before saying goodbye to the family, my little girl left me her teddy, who she just happened to have with her. Mm. And I remember arriving in hospital and you have to go through your bag and everything. And so I had knitting and a bear and that was it. I had no clothes. I just had what I was wearing. Yeah. And those were kind of my two, my two things that I sort of held on to through my hospital stay um and then when I was there again later this uh earlier this year I had two bears with me and I would sort of carry them around with me at times because I was allowed to knit in hospital uh on the side I was going to ask about whether you were allowed knitting because um I don't know if you've heard one of my previous um yeah guests was saying I'm only going to be admitted if I can bring my knitting and yeah um yeah, I so didn't I make that. I didn't make that um, <laughs> ultimately, <laughs> but, but um, yeah, I think she was on a mother and baby unit. She was, she? yeah, yeah. So I also have been on an MBU, and I also had my knitting with me. Yeah. Um, on that, so how it worked for me was I was allowed to have my knitting, but it had to be kept um in the nurse's um office, and then I was allowed to knit around the ward. Um, at different times I had to be sort of specifically near the nurses but then as I got a little bit better I was then allowed to in my bedroom with the door open and that was like a sign oh I'm starting to get better yeah um so I would 
it was a bit embarrassing at first because I had only taken projects to knit. I just had some small sort of projects to knit for the two bears I had because it was just easier to have something small. And I found that knitting for the teddy bears is quite therapeutic actually when I'm sort of struggling to concentrate or yeah, can't sort of cope with something bigger than <laughs> about the size of my hands. So um so I had the bears with me and I, I was doing a uh, top-down jumper, so I needed the bear to see when I could split for the sleeves. And one of the other patients came over and just picked up the bear and sat down and put the bear on his lap and was talking to the bear and then started telling me about the bear he'd had as a child. And mm. a few different people on the ward sort of adopted the bear for themselves and if I didn't have the bear in my bag oh where's where's Percy oh I want to say hello to Percy and give him a cuddle and and there was quite a lot of people on the ward with cuddly toys um and you know some people it's kept in their room but other people would would walk around with them at different times and it was just lovely because it became a way to kind of open up to one another and you know the the man who first picked up Percy was you know quite uh striking quite sort of big and I was a bit frightened of him at first and mm. he he really sort of softened up um yeah. interacting with the bear and it was just completely I wasn't doing anything it was yeah you know he was sort of talking to the bear and giving him a cuddle and stuff and so it's I don't know there's something about bears that oh I mean not everyone likes bears but there's more than just another animal cuddly toy I feel like they have something special which I'm not really sure what it is Mm. and I wondered whether that's something that happens also online whether people then send you stories about significant bears or their relationship with oh yeah bears because of what you do yeah yeah I get sometimes people will send me photos and private messages of oh this is my childhood bear and oh seeing your bears has made me want to get him out of the loft or yeah um I've had people ask me oh how do you think I could mend my bear um and then there's there's people who just I I don't know it seemed when I post a bear picture they just seem to smile I feel like it just makes people smile and happy mm-hmm. and sort of comforted somehow um and yeah. I wonder because I I feel like you get some of that not in the same way um because I guess bears do probably mostly with people connect to their childhood memories or fam- maybe people who were looking after them like a mm. caring early caring relationships I suppose is the kind yeah. of stories probably you get from people um and like they're, that they can be a companion through many decades of somebody's yeah. life, I suppose. But I also wonder whether like knitting in public, I feel like you get some of those stories and like opens up oh, the yeah. softer side of people as well. Because I guess often they're associated with maybe older female relatives who are not around anymore. Or, you yeah. know, I feel like those are the stories that people will tell me on the tube or. Oh, yeah, yeah. Know. Yeah. I was just going to say I've knitted on the metro in Paris. Yeah. And it's probably like the tube. People have their eyes down and yeah. no one smiles and no one looks at one another. And it was the first time I was on my own in the tube knitting. And, you know, I was looking at everyone and smiling. And this lady came up. She said, Oh, was it magnifique? <laughs> you're, you're just magnificent. And yeah. Yeah. I think um, it makes people laugh or it makes people be intrigued what you're doing why are you doing that how are you doing that um 
like at uni when I went to the knitting society it was the first year that they'd set it up and I arrived on the first night all excited with my project bag and I had a pair of socks in there on five needles like I used to knit them and I pulled it out and I didn't realize that the people who'd set it up were absolute beginners who were desperate to learn how to knit but had never knitted before and they were like what is that (laughs) (laughs) how on earth are you knitting on that um and yeah the knit sock was really great because we used to knit in a bar in the union and there'd be reggae and it was like the first time I sort of felt like it was a bit cool Uh um and all the girls who set it up were like really cool girls so um it's yeah it's a real good icebreaker I think yeah and I think it's amazing you know I suppose I'm thinking back to like teenage and I don't know what um time it was but I'm assuming um I don't know how old you're but I'm assuming it was kind of before you like you know social media and all of those things I'm wondering what difference it would have made if it was in the when we had the technology we have now to Fran as a teenager being able to connect to other people um I'm imagining that would have made a big difference actually oh yeah I think it would have uh I it's in the same way I can't actually imagine what it would be like to have had social media when I was very poorly um to not feel so alone yeah yeah I can imagine it would have been been wonderful and I do I feel really sometimes a little bit jealous of all the new knitters who arrive and it's just all there um you know ravelry and the patterns and um the 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 podcasts and you know I I think it's great Mm. and I didn't discover any of that until I think it was in about 2016 or 17 when I taught Mm. some people at work to knit in my team because lots of people wanted to knit for somebody who's having twins and then there were people there who were much younger than me who automatically went on YouTube and on Instagram to look at knitting when they or crochet when we started doing Um, something I taught them the basics and then they and because I'd learned to knit before any of those things existed yeah I hadn't ever I thought Instagram was for celebrities in bikinis and that was not for me (laughs) and I didn't think there was anything there like I just hadn't thought to look and then discovered it was like a bit of an epiphany when I discovered this whole world and it's so amazing to think you were the person at uni who was like you I think you said earlier the granny in the corner who was knitting (laughs) and I was that person too but we didn't know each other existed whereas now we do (laughs) do. (laughs) so that's a kind of silver lining I suppose in the social media the pros and the cons yeah yeah well I didn't know my only experience of Instagram was knitting so when I had friends back home who said oh it's all celebrities and like I didn't know that part of Instagram existed Mm. I thought it was just for knitting yeah well my Instagram (laughs) is just yeah yeah mine is too (laughs) yeah um yes but I guess yeah it's helpful to know that it can be like a more positive Mm. space yeah Okay. Um, Fran, I'd love to know about a significant project. I usually ask about a knitting project, but it doesn't have to be knitting, just a project that has meant a lot to you. Uh, Well, I'm going to talk about knitting, but it's also spinning. Mm -hmm. So um, we got married five years ago and we decided we were going to get married a month before it happened. There was a little bit of deadline because the family member was very poorly. And around the same time of uh, deciding we were going to get married, 
I'd attended a uh, shearing, of a, a sheep shearing at a local, they're called Eco Musée in Fran- French. So it's kind of like a rare breeds kind of farm um, yep. near to where we lived. And we were living in Brittany at the time. And I don't know if you know the Wesson sheep. It's, yes. Yes. So the world's smallest sheep. Yeah. And um, black or brown. Yeah. Black or brown or in this case, tawny white okay i haven't um, seen those ones the farm we go to has a little flock of them so oh, i have they're, they're like cuddled sheep them. yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> they're absolutely adorable yeah so, so they're normally black um like that's how they were were originally but i think with a bit of crossbreeding occasionally there's a white sheep okay so there was a white sheep in the flock a a young I think she was about 18 months old and I had explained to the um shepherd that I was a spinner and would it be possible to have um a fleece because it was doing like a demonstration of shearing so and he was like oh yeah that's fine which one do you want so I was able to pick out the sheep I wanted because this oh she just had a beautiful little face and her wool was sort of white but with little flecks of sort of brown so kind of a beigey but not not just beige kind of a richer color so anyway I went home with this fleece and then I think the same week we decided we were going to get married um and I was like right I'm going to make a shawl from this fleece so in a month I sorted scoured spun knitted wow (laughs) shawl um and there was literally just enough wool to make this shawl um because I mean their fleeces are tiny yeah um I had a tiny bit because there's always waste when you spin um so I only spun it singles because it was so the pattern is the perpendicular shawl which I can't remember who made it okay. but it was a pom 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 publication shawl mm-hmm. uh, and so it was garter and lace and I literally I think right at the end I had to just add in a tiny bit of wool from something else because there wasn't enough to cast off okay um so I wore the shawl on my wedding day and it was lovely and I actually made my dress as well so I made a wool um kind of short to my knees dress I was completely covered in wool for my wedding (laughs) amazing and it was all wool from either France or England so it was kind of like the two countries coming together um but the really amazing thing was so then two weeks after the wedding we went back to the museum and the shepherd I think there was some sort of event going on I can't remember now and I was wearing my shawl and the shepherd was there and I said look look this is that sheep and he couldn't believe I'd made something so beautiful and then he let me cuddle the sheep and they took photos of me and it was just wonderful to be holding the sheep wearing my shawl yeah Uh, how amazing that's such an amazing story well, sadly, the shawl has been attacked by moths, so oh. it's in tatters in a bag. Um, but I've actually started spinning for another one, and I'd like mm. to make a, a new one. So I've also got some Wesson that was already carded, so it's a bit easier. And I'm, I literally started a couple of weeks ago spinning it up. I'm not going to try and do it in a month this time, but 
<laughs> maybe uh, be a bit kinder on the time scale. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow, that's an amazing story and amazing like for me to hear because every year we go to this same farm in the Isle of Wight and uh, oh, okay. they have this little flock and they're wool because they have a they're basically essentially pet sheep yeah. on kind of a farm with holiday lets. There's there's no market for a very small amount of no. the fleece. So they've got a few valet black nose uh sheep oh, and nice. some um wasant and a few others. But um they keep offering me raw <laughs> fleece oh. and I have actually got some in a bag on top oh, wow. of my cupboard. A small amount that I was gonna try yeah. to do some I've done a tiny bit of needle felting oh, with because yeah. obviously you can do that with the raw yeah, basically yeah. raw wool. Um, but yeah, I didn't know where to start with processing it, but I would love to be able to do this. <laughs> oh yeah. No, it's I think it's quite good for felting actually. Yeah. It's, um it um in France they're quite often used as uh, ecological lawn mowers. So I wonder if that's the the same um that you find them yeah. grazing like different towns sometimes will have them grazing mm-hmm. um on their ta- on the um common something what it's called common grass you know yeah in front of the town halls and things so unfortunately the sheep that are called wesson now they're only found on the mainland of france or that's so the the island so they're originally from an island which is called wesson and the people bred them black for their original color of their clothing because they wore completely black woolly dresses and things and in the 60s, they sent some bigger sheep over to breed a bigger sheep. So the the sheep you find on that island now are much bigger and they're not at all, they don't look the same. Okay. So the ones you find elsewhere in the world are the original Wesson sheep, but they're actually a rare breed, I think. Okay. Um, so it's great if there's some on the Isle of Wight. Yes. And they're very sweet and friendly oh, yeah. as well <laughs> yeah. and like the size of our dog basically our yeah. Dog. yeah but they have enormous horns I don't know if yes. you've seen the rams <laughs> yeah 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 there was some you had to be a bit careful of <laughs> they were yes. in a separate field the rams yeah yeah the well, rams that's... I think can be a bit aggressive so to... they look very sweet but you have to be careful they don't come and give you a butt on the yes. <laughs> It was a particularly bad-tempered one called Marmite, interestingly. <laughs> I thought that was a great name for him. Oh, yeah. Because it was the colour of Marmite. Yeah. And also brilliant. kind of the personality was quite divisive as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds like an amazing project to have the whole history of it from start to finish. And it sounds like a big part of the joy you get out of the crafting, like the bear making and the knitting is about the kind of connection with the fibre oh, yeah. and the whole process, where yeah. the materials come from and... Yeah, I have a favourite quote, which I think was in the Knitter's Book of Wool by okay. Clara Parks. Oh, yeah. And she she shared that, I think Shakespeare said, um, Joy's soul is in the doing. And I think that's very much the the way it is for me, particularly actually with spinning. I think spinning has been in my life sort of the last 10 years and to be able to go back a step in the knitting process and actually sit with, the raw fleece and mm. then make that into something you can knit with I mean it, it's like alchemy when I do that mm-hmm. I love it and do you think you've taken on a bit of that your dad's kind of um ethos of 
uh, if I don't know how to do this, but I can like get a book and figure out how kind of thing. Because it sounds like you do love the kind of learning new processes of the making. Oh, definitely. You weren't scared by the raw fleece and oh, now I have to learn five different processes before I can even spin it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, um, oh, definitely. I think that's why I said he's probably the biggest influence in my Mm. making um, because I kind of woke up one morning 10 years ago and said, oh, I want a spinning wheel and found an antique one um, secondhand. And the lady kindly, she slightly showed me how to use it, but then she was gone and yeah I had to teach myself and taught Mm -hmm. myself by doing very much um and from books as well and then YouTube kind of came along later um Mm -hmm. for me but um the uh yeah very much experimental learning I think and that's that's the way my dad works and and he's always been very interested in the sort of heritage side to his craft so his his roofing with like he learned lead work and um he has he has all these odd tools that are really old-fashioned I can't even think what they're called now but again I really love tools and behind me I've got all my spinning stuff and they've all got funny names like lazy Kate and Mm -hmm. uh, niddy noddy and I just love all that it's really yeah yeah I went to a, um, because of the rain, went to an agricultural kind of um, museum in Ireland, basically to get shelter from the rain, essentially. (laughs) (laughs) And saw, I'd just been looking up kind of hand carding tools to do something with this fleece for needle felting, because it's much easier when it's carded. And had been looking those up uh, to maybe buy some and then saw some in this museum. Oh, wow. (laughs) uh, Kind of amazing, but yeah Yeah. they're in a museum yeah I'm still thinking about buying some (laughs) yeah 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 um so it does sound like there's that appreciation of the connection to history and how things have been done Mm. kind of by hand Mm. but that's a big part of it as well for you Mm. yeah and it's um living abroad it's also been quite instrumental in helping me to feel more at home here Mm. for so I've been here nearly 15 years and for the first five it was hard to kind of find a thing that connected me to where I live locally um, because I was originally here teaching English so everything about me was about being foreign ah yeah but I wanted a thing that was let me kind of uh, appropriate an aspect of France for myself and definitely going to local farmers and getting their local breed wool and um I'm also a member of a of a nationwide well no it's Europe-wide actually but it's a French wool association so Mm -hmm. it's shepherds and felters and knitters and spinning mill owners and like from the small like artisanal me in my corner to like these massive spinning mills we're all Mm -hmm. part of the same thing and it it really really helped me to feel more settled and more at home Mm. and it's funny you talked about marmite because um when I'm feeling when my parents come over to visit they'll often what what do you want us to bring so yeah yeah, there's always a pot of marmite um (laughs) but for quite a long time when I was feeling homesick I used to order wool from the UK mm-hmm. read specific wool and send it to mum and dad and then they would bring it over and so I've got a nice little stash of that and when I feel a bit homesick I'll 
I'll go and get a ball of of uh, Black Welsh Mountain or something, and I'll yeah. I'll make something with that, and it just helps curb the the homesickness mm. in a funny way. Yeah, and it sounds like the shawl, the wedding shawl, had a lovely way of bringing both of those parts of your identity together, the French mm. and the English. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's interesting you mentioned um, stash because that's one of the things, the questions I like to ask about, like whether you have a stash and yeah. what your relationship is to it. It sounds like there's a bit uh, yes. of uh, helping with homesickness. Yeah, yeah, I do have yeah. a sash, um, probably a bit bigger than it should be. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think um, apart from the moths, which yes. unfortunately we have had a few problems with moths, um, so that is always a bit of a worry, which is why I'd like to have slightly smaller, more manageable stash. But I've I've sort of collected wool um, in the last few years. Once I learned how to spin my husband said oh that's amazing you won't need to buy wool ever again and it was kind of the opposite because <laughs> I I wanted to try everything get my hands on everything so I like to think of my wool area or my stash as a library of um of, of balls of wool from all across Europe I don't really have any anything from outside of Europe but so I've got some Icelandic wool and some Norwegian wool, and then I've got a lot of French breed breed specific stuff because um, mm-hmm. we have as many sheep breeds in France as I think um, I was going to say is different types of cheese, but that's not entirely true because I think there's like six hundred types of cheeses and there's not six hundred sheep, mm. but there's a lot of diversity in mm-hmm. in French sheep. So, and sometimes if like inevitably now with connections with other knitters we like to do swaps and things so if someone sends me like a friend sent me some wool from Norway a couple of months ago and it feels like having a woolly postcard sent to me in the post so I'll probably never make it to Norway but at least I can have some have some Norwegian wool to try and touch and find out where it's from and things so yeah so it sounds like when you're buying yarn or wool that it would be it's important to you like where it comes from the kind yeah. of the type of wool as well yeah I think being a spinner it just made me really interested in in different breeds of things and I'm kind of a bit I always like to be a bit different um so I, I quite like all the wools that are sort of itchy scratchy and a bit more rustic and things so but going back to childhood, it's interesting. When I used to go to the wool shop, as it was called in yeah. my hometown, um, it was this tiny little narrow, thin shop with literally yarn up to the ceiling mm-hmm. in different boxes. And uh, I would, they would go behind the counter to get me a stepladder so I could stand up and look at the knitting book patterns. I don't know if you've ever seen those before. Yeah, yeah. Um, and all of the good stuff all of the actual wool was up right up high out of reach and I could only sort of within reach get the acrylic um things in it and it was amazing when I first started spinning and I sort of had this realization that I had grown up knitting but had never actually uh, tasted never actually tried real wool yeah um and again it felt like really empowering Mm -hmm. to to be able to go to a farmer get some fleece and then make something with it yeah yeah and actually there are not many people who could probably in the whole 
of Europe who can, you know, take it from the animal yeah, <laughs> and turn it into a shawl like you have. Yeah. 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 yeah, that's amazing. And it sounds like a big part of your relationship with the craft is the tactile part of it. Yeah. You talked about that quite a lot, like what it feels. And I wondered about from a like a health, like mental health or well-being perspective for you, whether that do you think that's part of the is it is there a comfort from the tactile stuff or an interest or a is there something it gives you that tactile thing that is helpful? Yeah, I think um so as I said, I'm more into the kind of sturdy, rustic strong walls and I have a jumper that I knitted from handspun um a few years ago and it's grey and when I put it on I feel like I'm putting armour on mm-hmm. and I'll often wear it if I've had to go and see doctors or things that frighten me um so there's that aspect to it and that because the sheep that that made the the fleece comes from our mountain sheep so they spend all summer up in the hills in the rain and the wind and sometimes the snow even in the summer so they have this kind of strength to them that I feel kind of I like to think I gets imparted onto me when mm. I'm making it. and the other thing about the tactile side like four years ago whilst pregnant I was really severely depressed um, and I couldn't spin and I couldn't knit actually but I would just lie I would sit up in bed and I would wind balls and balls and balls of yarn and then I would rewind it and unwind mm-hmm. it and rewind it and just having that sort of um that was all I could do yeah but it really just helped me Mm -hmm. um I have a lovely ball winder that I treated myself to a wooden one made in Europe that so sometimes I really like to just use the ball winder because I I find it very satisfying yeah I do I do love to to wind by hand um Mm -hmm. because you just really I think you get to know the wool in the first way by winding it by hand um I really enjoy that Mm. so yeah I think it does definitely have a an impact on my health yeah Mm. and amazing that you yeah could still access something helpful about the craft even if the more complicated bits Mm. you know weren't manageable at that time for you well I think as well the lovely thing about knitting or my bear making or when you have actually finished something you've got that forever and I think Roz talked about it when she's too poorly to knit you can still wrap yourself up in a shawl that Mm. you've made yourself you can lie in bed and imagine what you're going to make next um and I think that's the same for me Mm. um and I know Ellen who I interviewed um spoke about the idea of like spending time with her stash or touching the yarn when she didn't like when she was feeling too low for example or anxious to Mm. knit or do anything else that there was still like a comfort from touching the yarn or thinking about I think she's she mentioned like the idea of the potential yeah kind of gave her hope yeah um that there was this potential in this unknitted skein of yarn yeah yeah but I think it it, like it's interesting you say hope because I think um I'm sure I read somewhere that you know knitters believe in tomorrow because tomorrow Mm -hmm. there'll be a project to work on and I Mm -hmm. think that's really a really nice way of thinking about it yeah and I guess they are often like they're not it's not the quickest 
way of doing getting a jumper is it knitting no um <laughs> no so there's an element of you know sitting with the process or kind of being in it for the long haul even if actually the long haul is not very nice or there's tough bits along the journey mm. or you know I think there's a nice kind of metaphor in there of kind of sticking around yeah definitely, for the end yeah. result that I think yeah. is quite helpful and I love the idea of you taking on the kind of the kind uh the protective nature of the mountain sheep because I think you're not the first person to talk about and certainly I definitely relate to the idea of feeling like an extra comfort or superpower when I'm wearing something I made myself and I would Mm -hmm. feel like it would give me more confidence if I was doing something I was nervous about or yeah worried about you know I don't know going to hospital appointment or giving a presentation or something I would feel like I would want to wear something I'd made myself because there was some special magic in it but I love the idea that you've got this extra layer of you know those are really tough sheep (laughs) (laughs) with really tough fleeces that can withstand extraordinary things and maybe I can have some of that extraordinary for this thing I've got to do today yeah I love that Mm -hmm. yeah okay amazing um, can I ask about your relationship to mistakes? Because my assumption and experience from life is that they happen in my knitting. <laughs> and um, yeah, and I feel like my relationship to mistakes has evolved over time. And I've maybe got a bit better at tolerating them in my normal life as well, as a result yeah. of making so many of them in knitting. I don't know. What's yeah. your experience <laughs> of mistakes in knitting? Um, I think there's a duality for me. There's that sort of learning to accept imperfection um because as much as we may try can't always get it perfect Mm -hmm. and that 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 was a big lesson from spinning actually um because my very first yarn for a very long time was lumpy bumpy and didn't look at all uh neat or anything and then you realize well that's the uh appeal of hand spun is it's Mm -hmm. not done on a machine um so there's that aspect, but I think what overrides that for me is the resolve to make things better and to be able to hopefully make things better. So I'm I'm depending on what sort of mistake it is. I mean, if it's a massive hole um, in a jumper I'm knitting, then I probably would go back to it if I can. But I'm not a sort of perfectionist either, mm-hmm. I think. So, yeah. So it sounds like it's your kind of, a place of accepting of that mistakes happen and yeah you might need to do something about it Mm. if it's gonna like unravel the whole thing yeah um (laughs) well just before we we called um I had I was unraveling and uh a few rows on a hat I'm knitting at the moment from some hand spun and I unraveled it put all the it's a fingering weight in naturally dark black yarn (laughs) So I put them all back on, the stitches back on, and then I realised that I had still more to go. So I took them all off again and unravelled again. Mm. And and I actually really don't mind that. My yeah. people around me will often be, why are you unravelling it or why are you ripping it back? And it's like, it's fine. I, yeah. I find it quite satisfying even just the unravelling. Um, but as I said, I don't knit sort of lace or very intricate cables so perhaps it's a bit less devastating if it's just garter stitch to pull back I don't know I don't know I think the more I have do I've knitted the kind of more I kind of am accepting that sometimes that it is just part of the process that's Mm. most of the knitting will be forwards and a part a percentage of it will be backwards 
because something would have happened and you know sometimes I'll decide to leave it but sometimes I'll decide no it'll annoy me and I'll so I'd rather go backwards but that I feel like I've got much more I'm much more at peace with that that I've accepted that there will be mistakes sometimes and yeah I mean if it was mohair then I might be more inclined to leave it and not go back. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but then it's just easy, so you can't see it, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, or, you know, and I kind of think, you know, do I, maybe it's fine. Mm. Like that that cable, I have certainly got a mohair cardigan where the cable twists the wrong way and it's oh, right yeah. down the front. Yeah. And, you know, somebody was saying about nobody else will notice. And actually I was thinking that wasn't even in my uh kind of consideration was was not really what other people think I'm thinking more about is that going to annoy me when I wear it because mm. I mean who cares what it's not their cardigan yeah <laughs> <laughs> and it actually occurred to me that at least if it was stolen because I was thinking this is a lovely mohair cardigan it's probably very high up the list of things people want to steal <laughs> I could identify at the police station yeah. and prove it was mine because they would know there was a mistake <laughs> um yeah so I left that one because I'd already uh, separated for the sleeves and thought, no, I'm not oh, going yeah. back in mohair. But, yeah. you know, on another day, I might make a different decision. But, but I, I think feel it's... a lot more peaceful about it but, but either way. Yeah, and I think it's that thing when you're able to decide, do I go back or do I go on? Mm-hmm. And because in life, sometimes we have to also do that, don't we? Yeah. Do I let, Do I just let this go or do I plough on forward? So it's uh, I do I do find knitting quite philosophical at times mm. <laughs> and I think there's no it's not like there's one right option and one wrong no. option or that for me that even for me on one day will this will be the right option and for me on another day that the other mm. thing will be the right option and that's fine I guess isn't it I guess mm. it's just uh I feel like I've got better at tolerating the messy messy process yeah. <laughs> <laughs> probably yeah. Fran, I'd love to hear about something you do outside of crafting, let's say, um, that you do to benefit your mental health, something else that kind of brings you joy or helps you. Yeah, so having um, a diagnosed uh, illness of bipolar, there's obviously um, things that I have to do, like take my medication and sleep properly and eat well. So those are all things that I kind of do as as a default um but I think the thing that I love the most is just being outside being out in I'm really fortunate to live in in the mountains um so the Pyrenees down in southwest France and when I can I just love to be outside I love to be walking even if it's not very far um mm-hmm. and I do really love to craft outside as well actually mm-hmm um so just being in the place um that I call home now mm-hmm. um yeah being out in the fresh air mm-hmm. and presumably where you live you get quite dramatic seasons as well like in terms of experiencing the outside yeah um so because we're quite far south it can be it can be like 20 degrees on Christmas day oh wow <laughs> and you can be in t-shirts sometimes yeah. and then and then a week later it can be under a meter of snow yeah. so um what's more extreme is that we get like yesterday there was an earthquake um wow. <laughs> that just sort of happens and was that a lorry or was it an earthquake no it was an earthquake um 
there's you know roads we can't go on in winter because they have avalanches and things like that so the so the landscape here is both very soothing um but quite extreme and uh, sort of going back to the sheep they do have to be really tough and really hardy to live here um because also the one of the really cool things about here is when they move the sheep up to the summer pastures in the summer they go on foot so the sheep have to walk from the bottom of the valley up high mm-hmm. um which is called transhumans um i think in english we'd say droving which probably mm-hmm. people used to do before um so yeah i i love all that sort of agricultural um mountain stuff i find that really interesting mm. yeah so you kind of almost can't escape being quite connected to nature if you have oh, to no. plan your route through uh definitely around uh yeah. the, being at the mercy of the oh yeah avalanche or something yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it's um it's a different way of life i grew up in mm. dorset by the sea um so it's quite a different different way of life and even just things like in this in the winter we have quite a small amount of we we don't have uh darkness like you have in the nordic countries but um we have the shadow of the mountains so we're in the shade for quite a lot of the day okay so you have to get used to rushing out when you can when the sun's out at 11 o'clock in the morning and then it's quite cold immediately at two when the when the sun disappears Oh, so, wow that's not something I've ever heard or thought about before having never been yeah lived in a mountain area <laughs> and it's important that you pick a house that's south facing because you want to try and get as much light as possible mm. so again there, there's some parts of the valley where people live and they don't get any sun in the, in the winter at all for a couple wow. of months um so I, I wasn't aware of that until until I moved here and realised that yeah we're going to move into this house because it's south facing and it's it's in the good bit of the valley where it gets a bit more sun than down below and things yeah. so yeah yeah wow so it sounds like connecting to nature is soothing and important for your mental health definitely yeah 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 so Fran I always end by asking what's the greatest gift that knitting brought to the rest of your life what what are your thoughts on that question um I think I would say that it's helped me to realize that life is more about being than doing Mm -hmm. um even though obviously when we're knitting I'm doing but I think knitting slows me down and my type of knitting I find very meditative it's funny I, I often hear people talk about mindless knitting um, because you can watch the telly at the same time or something. And and I think they're often referring to stocking stitch or garter stitch. But I find that kind of knitting, I'm really present with the stitches and um, sort of each stitch. Although I don't have to look at my knitting, you know, you feel it going through your yeah. fingers. Um, and particularly with my spinning, that slowness, because it takes a year for a sheep to grow a fleece and it can take me up to a year to process it to make a jumper and then it's however long it takes to knit so I'm quite a slow knitter so it's putting that slowness at the heart of life and I think slow life and slow craft really go together very well mm. um, and 
so what it brings to my life is it makes me realize that it's okay to be slow mm. and there is a place for slowness in the world um mm. even though everyone else is rushing around mm. so, and it yeah. sounds like you're appreciating like it helps you to kind of be in the moment definitely yeah in a kind of peaceful connected way yeah definitely yeah 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 so doing the garter stitch is quite mindful rather than mindless for you yes yeah yeah and I think as well um because I will like listen to things or um watch things but it's it's nice to be able when I don't want to do that to just yeah just to be with it Mm. um and to just take my time and and it allows me to think yes there is a place for me because my illnesses make me really have a slow life Mm. um and it's like if I take my time on this piece of knitting it will hopefully turn out really nice and Mm. that's quite a nice way to approach life I think yeah yeah to find the value in the slowness Mm. yeah definitely amazing well thank you Fran so much for joining me and having this conversation um if people want to find out more about you and your bears and the rest of your making and the things you share on Instagram um how would they do that yeah so on Instagram I'm at woolen hearted um with a double l like in British English yeah and I've got a website too which is woolenhearted.com okay super thank you so much thank you Thank you so much for listening to the podcast if you'd like to find out more about my work you can visit my website therapeuticknitting.org or you can follow me on instagram at knitting is therapeutic thanks